Last Christmas, my, my sister-in-law, Molly Lillis, uh, bought me a, a series of movies, the trilogy, um, the Bourne series, you know, Jason Bourne, the Bourne Identity and a Bourne Supremacy and Bourne Ultimatum. Uh, mildly violent movies, <laughs> but still good for the male soul. <laughs> um, but there you go. There's a theme that's woven through those three movies that I find um, insightful. In the very first movie, um, the person called J Jason Bourne, he wakes up on a small fishing boat in the Mediterranean, and he doesn't know his name, doesn't know where he is, who he is, where he comes from. All he has are these elusive images that come to him that do more to confuse him than to clarify for him who he is. So through the three movies, at its heart, is a fundamental search for who this man called Jason Bourne is. Where did he come from? What's his name? Because he just doesn't know. It's one of those questions or quests of knowing who one is that can only be pieced together as he discovers his past and forges into the future. So through the three movies, he goes from not knowing his name, not knowing where he comes from, his history, to the final end movie, under the movie, The Bourne Ultimatum, where he finally discovers and puts the pieces together of his past and he, he knows who he is and someone tells him what his real name is. It's a search for his identity. That's, that's kind of at the heart of the, of the trilogy of movies with some really nice interruptions of fast action and... <laughs> and repeated attempts to assassinate him. But that is part of the, uh, the substructure of those movies. And um, it's interesting to me that that is the question, is that every individual that I know of that thinks at some point or another, from at some level, at some degree, wrestles with the question, who am I? Where do we come from? And what do we find meaning and purpose? Where does significance lie in life? Um, we wrestle with that on our, our pillows at night. People do. Um, we wrestle with that as a, as a human race. That's why a lot of the great literature was written, wrestling with the deep question of who really are we? Where do we come from? Where are we going? Um, what is it that gives us a sense of identity and meaning and purpose? It is a deep question. It's a question that contemporary man has made every effort to tell us that the answer to where we come from is that we are byproducts of slow, incremental evolutionary changes sparked by random convergence of matter. And that's the answer given, which we're, our kids are being taught, my daughter's being taught. And in that answer to the question, that story, so to speak, which is a theoretical story, means ultimately life is, when it comes right down to it, meaningless. That fundamentally we have no purpose, there is no basis for morality, and there certainly isn't any hope because we're rattling around in this chaotic, cold, and random universe with no purpose. 
Well, that's one story, one theoretical story in answer to the question, where do we come from? But it leaves us completely bankrupt. But there's an alternate story, a story that has been written down in ancient documents preserved through the generations that bears its authenticity in archaeology, history, and the lives of millions of people. And it is the story of, of the Bible that tells us the story of mankind. And it is a story that gives us an identity and a meaning and a purpose and a sense of worth. It is an amazing story and an amazing answer to the fundamental question. Who are we? What's our purpose? Why are we here? And we're going to look at that story of humanity this morning. Our focus, of course, is what we will be in the future. But what's amazing about the Bible is what we will be is revealed in the beginning. That the story of our future is unfolded in our past. So what we're going to do over the next couple of moments is work through the story of humanity from the beginning to the end, and there's from Genesis to Revelation in four parts. And the reason I want to do that, it's a couple reasons, just to kind of let you know my thinking behind why I'm approaching it in terms of a story. One is that there are a lot of believers, including believers who have been in church a long time, who think of the Bible as a disconnected, disjointed group of stories with Jesus somehow tucked in the middle of this collage and fail to realize that the Bible tells a singular story, a singular story, which Christ is the center of and we have a major part in. So that's one thing. It's just to put the Bible together and the idea of our future in the context of the whole story, which will also support what I said at the beginning, and that is the entire Bible Christianity and the church should be leaning forward towards the end. The whole thing moves that direction. So if you see that the story of our end is in the beginning, you'll see, wow, everything is moving that direction. Our hearts should be too. And then the, the last, this is kind of a byproduct or a, uh, one of the benefits of looking at it in terms of a story, is it provides a rather powerful defense or apologetic for the authenticity of the Bible. This book, miraculously enough, was written over a period of 15 centuries by people in different places, different cultures, and different times. And yet, uniquely, over this 1,500-year period, it tells a singular story as if one author through these authors is telling the story. And that, I believe, is the truth is it tells a singular story through different authors, authors through different times and different places because the Spirit of God was telling this story, our story. So it, it becomes a, uh, an apologetic. So without further ado, let me just follow me on the story. The story begins with design. Perhaps the most important I won't say the most important verses, but definitely foundation to the whole Bible and foundational to our understanding of ourselves and what we will become is found in Genesis 1, 26 through 28. 
where we learn about God's original primal design when he first created us. Created us. Here are the verses. Then God said, you know these very well, let us make man in our image after our likeness and let them have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over the livestock and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that that creeps on the earth. And so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the heavens and over every living thing that moves on the earth. Now we can ski over this really quickly or you can stop and realize that there are key points of design as to what we were created to be that we will find come to light at the end of the story. One aspect you find in those verses is that we were designed to relate to and to reflect God. Let me say that again. You can read it there. It's that we were designed to relate to and to reflect God. That is, we were created in his image. And the fact that we were created in his image makes two things possible in terms of humanity that is not true of any other creature in the universe. It gives us the capacity to relate to him in profound ways. Or think about it this way in terms of an analogy. Most of us in here would have a really difficult time connecting to and relating to a salamander, a cricket, a ladybug, a camel, a horse, or even man's best friend, a canine. And you might think, yeah, my dog and I, we really connect. But your dog can't talk to you, can bark at you, that's about it. He can't give you a word of encouragement. It doesn't know when you're feeling sad to come up and put its paw on your shoulder and, and rub you. It just, there's, we do not connect deeply with anybody else but those who are like us. So we connect with our wives, we connect with our friends because we are like them. And the same holds true with this, as God created us in his likeness so that we could relate and we could connect to him at profound levels. In that, he says it over and over again. Let us make man in our image, in our likeness. 27, God created man in his own image, the image of God, so that we could connect in meaningful, profound, and wonderful ways. So it makes that possible for us to connect to God. No other creature in the universe can connect like humankind can, humanity can, because that's our, his image in us making that possible. So that's part of the design is to relate to him, but also to reflect his character, to reflect the fact that he reasons and he creates and he rules and he most importantly loves, all of which are seen or were designed into human beings so that we would see a God-like love, a God-like reasoning, a God-like creativity, a God-like community. So he created us to relate to him and reflect him. And that is what gives human beings at the bottom level 
importance and meaning and identity is that we were created in his image to relate to him and also to reflect him. In other words, in a manner of speaking, God has infused humanity with the royal blood of himself. That's a far cry from believing you came from a bacteria. Okay, first design. That's first part of the design, is that we were created to relate to and reflect God. Number two, we were designed to fill the earth with people. This is more functional. And he obviously gave humanity the hardware to do this, but this is functional, what we were called to do. The first parents were given this command that God said, God bless them. That brings with it implications of the grace to carry it out. God blessed them, and God said to them, be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth. This tells us that part of God's end goal for these two people was a multitude to fill the entire planet. In other words, it was not God's design to give Adam and Eve an eternal couple's retreat. (laughs) It was to fill. I did not mean the association with couples or teeth, the movie, but in any any case. The design was for a people, a multitude, to actually fill the entire planet. These, These people who can relate to God and reflect God are to fill the entire earth. So that is the design, a people, a multitude, um, beyond number. So that needs to be kept in mind. And as a little bit of a side note, that means that we were created to be communal people, that part of our identity and our meaning and significance comes from relating to the people God has placed in our lives and will one day resurrect with God at the center. So that's design number two, is that God intended to fill the earth with people as part of what he designed us to be. Number three, we were designed to subdue and govern the earth. That also, of course, is brought out there in those few foundational verses where he says to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it and have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the air and so forth. Then one of the marks about God throughout the scripture is that he is sovereign in his rule over all things big and small like sparrows. And he confers and designs mankind to carry out his sovereign rule over the planet, caring for it benevolently, wonderfully, managing it, and so forth. So we were designed to subdue subdue and uh, rule the earth. Now, I've always wondered about the word subdue. What did Adam have to subdue? That gives a sense that there's a mission to accomplish. But... I think the idea is, let me put it in a hypothetical. If, I know there's problems with hypotheticals, but if Adam and Eve had never taken of the fruit of good and evil, if they had never fallen, and they would have had children, and children would have had children in the garden, that would have necessitated the expansion of the garden. In other words, the garden was Adam's sphere of practical authority. And as his family would have grown, so would that garden would have to have been expanded. In other words, that's, I think, what he means by subdue. As you grow, expand, and one day rule the earth, the entire earth. Of course, 
you know, by God's secret will and, and by the sinful choice of men, we know that God intended um, what took place to show off his love. Nevertheless, we were created to rule and to manage and to lead. So that's another design aspect. And then the fourth one, which isn't found in chapter 1, but it's found in chapter 2, is that we were designed to carry out benevolent work on the earth. That is, we had something to do. Adam had a task he had to, had to do. He didn't sit idle in the garden. Chapter 2, verse 15 tells us that the Lord took the man and put him in the garden of Eden too, and here's the purpose for it, to work it and to keep it. Now, both those words translated work and keep translate Hebrew words that were used together to speak of what the priests would do in the temple. In other words, there's the sense of worship to what Adam had to do in taking care of the garden. Naturally, that task would be of service to his wife and hypothetically his children to come in the garden, as well as to the animals that he had practical oversight for. So he was to serve in practical ways in the garden. He had a job to do. This kind of runs, well, keep in mind, this is pre-fall. Some of you people believe that, that work is a product of the fall. Oh, now we got to work because everything fell. He was given work to do before he ever fell. So here you have four design factors, how God created us in the beginning to be that we were to relate to and reflect God as his image bearers, that we were to fill the earth with people, that we were to subdue and rule the earth, and we had tasks, responsibilities, and works of service to do. Now, keep those four things in your mind. We lingered there on the design factor. Now let's kind of bounce to two, three, and four of the story. As you well know, chapter three and chapter four, because of the choice that was made on Adam's part to take the fruit. He did it knowingly, and Eve did it by way of deception, that they experienced the knowledge of evil which they themselves could not control, and it corrupted them. And chapter 3 and 4 of Genesis tell us that those original designs that God had grafted into humanity were flawed, corrupted, twisted. And it's amazing how chapter 3 and 4 record that those things were twisted. Not only was the image of God distorted by an evil heart, but the design to fill the earth with people was now frustrated by pain that the woman would now produce very painfully in order to accomplish this, so it would be frustrated by pain. That man's uh, design to rule would be frustrated by conflict and jealousy and envy as he and his wife would struggle with control as one brother would be jealous over another brother, we find that there is conflict and frustration in that design. And then Adam's design to do meaningful work in the garden is frustrated now because now the ground produces thorns and thistles and is hard. So at each point, the design is frustrated. But God's purpose for his people His sovereign purpose would not be thwarted or frustrated either by our sin or by the works of Satan. Because God came to a man, we're going to notice, we're going to jump to step two here in terms of the promise. He comes to Abraham and he makes a promise that echoes Genesis 1. This is what we read. 
Behold, he's talking to Abraham, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. No longer shall your name be called Abram, but your name shall be Abraham. For I have made you the father of a multitude of nations. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make you into nations and kings shall come from you. He promises covenant. Only reason that man can have covenant with God is that he is created in his image and have that relationship. That he promises to him to make him a father of a multitude as Adam was to be a father of a multitude. So now God comes and he says to Abraham, I am promising that you will be the father that Adam wasn't. And from you a multitude of nations will come. A multitude of nations said again in verse 5. I will make you exceedingly fruitful. That's language of Genesis 1. And I will make you into nations and kings. Those who exercise rule will come from you. And it's basically you have here the content of Genesis 1 now promised to another man. God saying, I will make this happen. I will make this happen. So he promises it as a future reality. And then the rest of the Old Testament, we find this echo of what God would do in forming a people for himself. We find it in the mouths of the singers of songs and, and, the, and the poets and the prophets. So that you find over and over again in the, in the Psalms, things like, like all the families of the nations will worship before you. Or may the Lord be gracious to us and bless us and make his face to shine on us so that your way may be known on earth and your saving power among the nations. As God is zeroed in, determined to carry out the original purpose, he's not letting it fall to the ground. He's not letting sin throw it off course, and he's not letting Satan throw it off course. He promises to make Genesis 1 a reality again. And one of those kings who was to rule did come from the line of David, as you well know, which brings us to the third central point of the story of humankind, namely that of redemption. Remember how he said in the beginning, sometimes people think Jesus is just kind of thrown in there like some story that's disconnected from the rest? No, he's central to the story and to this unfolding plan to build a people. So when Jesus speaks to his disciples, for example, on Mark 10, 45, it says, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for, for many, a multitude, a people. In other words, Jesus came to do what Adam failed to do. As Adam was created to image forth the glory of God, Jesus did so perfectly. As Adam was commanded to fill the earth with people, so Christ would, through the redemption of his blood, ransom for himself a people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. That as Adam was commissioned and vested with authority to rule, now Christ comes and is given all authority in heaven and on earth to rule where Adam failed and to subdue his enemies. That's why Paul will call him the new Adam, to make a brand new people. 
So from the beginning, God designed to have a people formed. He designed them to be that way. He promised that they would one day be that way again and through Christ. That is happening. Everything that happens in terms of evangelism and missions is nothing less than the carrying out of Genesis 1. Namely, we are multiplying for God a people. And when the kingdom, the gospel of the kingdom has been preached to the end of the earth and the last person comes into the family, the end will come. So that the people in Revelation worship Christ and they say, worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals for you were slain and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation and you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God and they shall reign on the earth. The multitude functioning as we were designed in the beginning by assisting Christ in his reign. He confers on those who trust in him the original design of Genesis chapter 1. So the final glimpses that we get of man in the last book of the Bible, at the time when Christ comes and the resurrection takes place, is nothing less than the completion of what he began and what he designed, what he promised, and what he redeemed us through Christ to be. So we read in Revelation 7, um, verse 9, a snapshot. We read that after this I looked and behold a great multitude that no one could number. From every nation, from all tribes and peoples and languages, standing before the throne and before the Lamb, clothed in white, white robes with palm branches in their hands, crying out with a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. And the final echoes of the final chapter of the Bible, and they will reign forever and ever. What I hope that you see is once again, the Bible ends where it began. That you'll see that We have a design. And by the grace of God, God promised that that design would be brought to completion. And by what he did in coming himself and ransoming for himself a people, he made possible. And someday that will be brought to completion at the resurrection. And what we were created to be in the beginning will be fully completed in the end. One story. And you know what, church? This is your story. This is my story. And in this we find and hang our identity, our security, our sense of self, a sense of future, and our hope. This is reality for the Christian life. And this is what God's going to do in us. That you are part of the royal family. By way of creation by way of promise, by way of redemption through Christ's blood, and someday by way of resurrection. And you will shine like the stars. It's your story. Now let's, that should, if we let it seep into the heart and our affections, that should inspire us to hope and to yearn and to long for the final resurrection of God's people. It should, as I said, if you let it, sink in. And if I pause to really think about what that means, 
it begins to awaken a new sense of, of hope and longing for that day to come. And what does it really mean? What does it really mean to have the image of God perfected in you and me? The image of Christ. To know that if the image is perfectly restored in you, then your ability to relate to God will be perfectly and wonderfully restored as well as the way you reflect it to each other. Now, I'll let that sink in for a moment. As we relate to the Lord, I don't know how you are in your relationship with the Lord, but mine is a series of ebbs and flows of peaks which are wonderful and you sense in your inner being the love of God and you know that he has you by his hand and he will never let you go and no one can pluck you out of his hands. Those are peak experiences, but then you're there for a few moments above the clouds and you slip down into the valley and you're like, Lord, why are you hiding your face from me? But on that day, There's no more peaks and valleys and no more ebbs and flows because we'll be perfectly connected consistently, eternally, and overflowingly to him all the time. Now, that sounds wonderful for me because I'm sick and tired of the Romans 8 frustration and groaning of going up and going down. Are you? That's Christian life, up and down. That day, it's going to be perfect, overwhelming connection 100% of the time. I look forward to that. Not only that, but I look forward to how that's going to play out in our relationships with each other. That somehow we are going to reflect distinctively and uniquely the glory of Christ in our lives. So if you can enjoy each other now, and I know you enjoy each other. At least most of you enjoy most of you. (laughs) Not all of you. But we're able to enjoy each other. And sitting down in a conversation with a brother that you love and, and feeling the heart stirred and warmed by our common confession and faith and, and truth, those are sweet, enjoyable times. And yet we are flawed people sitting across the table or a husband and wife who, who enjoy being with each other despite their flaws and imperfections. But what's going to happen when the imperfections are gone? I mean, I like to think my wife enjoys me now. I know I enjoy her now, and yet we're flawed. I have moments of selfishness and self-centeredness, which at times makes marriage rocky. But I still enjoy her, and she still enjoys me. Now, what's going to happen when the Dan that God has created me to be comes to light and reflects perfectly in my own unique way the glory of Jesus? If we can enjoy each other now, we can see grace of Christ in each other now, then what will it be when all of those imperfections are pulled away? That's going to be nothing less than astounding. Each moment sitting across a table will be a worship moment as we look at the glory of Christ reflected in each other, like, like light going back and forth between mirrors. And it's I, I, I believe that each of us, when we are resurrected, are going to have our own distinctive, unique ways of showing forth the image of God. 
We're not going to be carbon copies of each other. He didn't make us carbon covers. Now he's not going to make us then in the resurrection. Each person is going to shine with their own unique distinctiveness, the glory of Christ, based upon their disposition and their personality and how God fingerprinted them to be like snowflakes, all of which are different and yet all gloriously symmetrical. You're going to look around and see, oh, I haven't seen that before quality of Christ reflected in that person, like a huge stained glass window, glory of God shining through each of us, and it will be nothing less than a constant back and forth wonder of who God is reflected in each other. That's, that inspires me. If I can enjoy my relationships now, how much will I enjoy the love of those relationships then? And then you start thinking of what's going to be missing or what's going to be eliminated. Again, if I may talk about the frustration of Romans 8, there's a frustration that's a sin, and there's a frustration that is spiritual. The inward frustration and groaning that we feel because we still exist in fallen bodies with struggles with a fallen desire, the sense that I still haven't arrived, that I'm still struggling with selfishness and self-centeredness and pride and anger, anybody who is you know, contemplated their own inner life should find themselves frustrated. And to know the day's coming when that is not going to be there anymore. Not just that, but all the stuff that, that tangles up our relationships and wages war against our relationships of misunderstanding each other or being misunderstood, offending, or getting angry or, or being slow to forgive. All of those things that cause so much damage in God's church, they're going to be gone. We'll be perfectly understood. We will communicate without offending each other. And then there's a physical part of it. Just realizing that these bodies that are slowly falling apart are going to be fixed. Now, I don't know why it is that, that the people who are most connected with hope are those who are most connected with their mortality. Friday, I sat in front of a man who has cancer in four different places in his body. And he does not have years to live. In that condition, you realize, this isn't going to be much longer. It seems to me that, and yet, you know what? I know that he looks forward to the day when there will be no more pain. The cancer will be gone. It would do us well to stay closely connected to our mortality and know that our life is a vapor and it's going to be a snap and I'm going to be sitting in that chair. Then you're able to hope because you don't want the imperfections of the fallen, frustrated world anymore. And then the, the last thing that, that helps me in terms of just thinking through, I'm just thinking about the image of God perfected, restored, is the fact that we actually are going to have tasks and work to do. I told you last week that, that one of my images as a kid growing up was that heaven was an eternal church service sitting in pews, which gives the sense that we're all just going to be idle. But if the first Adam was given meaningful, benevolent work to do and a sense of purpose in the garden, then it stands to reason that we will be too. Only it will not be the monotonous drudgery of work that oftentimes frustrates this life in a fallen world. 
but it will be stuff that we love to do, like we were created to do it. And what comes to my mind is, is watching one of our guitar players, Joe Hendricks, play guitar. It's as if, and he never considers it work, it's as if his fingers are made for the guitar strings. Like he was hardwired to play music. He loves to listen to it. He loves to play it. He'll play it for hours on end. That is, I think, a bit of an analogy of what it will be, is that we will be given work that suits us and we will do it with tremendous joy in service to one another and service ultimately to the Lord. Like watching Ignatius John cook. He loves to cook and feed people and throw in his Indian spices. It's as if he was made for that. And that, I believe, is, is a sense of what it will be is everyone will have their distinctive way in which we help the management and the ruling of God's universe. Keeping in mind that rule and reigning in that time will be much different than ruling and reigning today because there will be no sin. No need for law enforcement, no need for legislation, no need for, for military. So what does that reign consist of? I think it consists ultimately of benevolent acts to help and serve God's people. So it's not inconceivable to think that people will still write stories in the new creation or compose music in the new creation or play instruments in the new creation. There will be no dentists and doctors, however, or pastors. Or that we will still not plant vineyards or people will not ferment wine or enjoy the works of their hands. I mean, if even a little bit, and this is the final text, of Isaiah's, Isaiah 65's vision of the new creation is to be taken even principally, then we're going to have work to do because this is what it says, for behold, I create new heavens and a new earth. And this is the explanation of what it will be. And I know you can't press poetic language to the details. This is poetic language. But it says, they shall build houses and inhabit them, and they shall plant vineyards and eat their fruit. They shall not build and another inhabit. In other words, you're not going to die and another person's going to take over. It is yours. For like the days of the tree shall the days of my people be, and my chosen shall long enjoy the works of their hands. This tells me that we are going to have meaningful and joyful things to do in service to one another and ultimately in worship to the Lord as we look in the place that we are and see God's glory. We look at the people that are around us and see God's glory and do things to the honor and glory of God to each other. Now, that stirs hope in me, and I hope it does to you too. So if you find yourself teetering under the weight of discouragement or pain, emotional or relational, or a bad history or bad finances, let your eyes and mind think on these things. This is your story. This is my story. This is where we're going, and God, through Jesus Christ, is going to take us there. And it should give you the joy and strength to bear up under any circumstance, because you're going home. You're going home. And I'm going home. If you don't know that story, I pray that God will open your ears and heart to it and know that God in a work of grace through his own son 
created you. He promised to redeem you. He redeemed you, and someday he will resurrect you. If you want to talk to somebody about that, I invite you to talk to me or somebody else on the stage. The most important story, story in the world. Father, I ask that you would just take this story and implant it into our hearts. May we look forward with longing and anticipation of the day in which we see your face amongst your people in the new creation. Thank you, and we worship you. Give us hope, Lord, for tomorrow, and enable us for the joy set before us to be faithful today, in Christ's name. Amen.
God, we are your people. We are your loved ones, Father. Almighty God, bless us. Blessed be your name. Church, let us stand together. Blessed be his name. Blessed be your name in the land that is plentiful. The streams of abundance flow. Blessed be your name. That's right. Let's put our hands together for him. Blessed be your name. And I found in the desert place. The walk through the wilderness. Blessed be your name. Every blessing you pour out, Father. Every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Lord, still I will say, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. Blessed be your name. On the road marked with suffering, there's pain in the offering. Blessed be your name. For every blessing you pour out, I'll turn back to praise. When the darkness closes in, Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your name. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Blessed be your glorious name. You give and take away. You give and take away. My heart will choose to say, Blessed be your name. You give and take away. You give and take away. Say, oh, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your glorious name, blessed be the name of the Lord, blessed be your name. Jesus, oh blessed be the name of the Lord, oh blessed be your glorious name. 
glorious name. Oh, blessed be your glorious name. Oh, blessed be your glorious name. Father God, blessed be your glorious name. As we go into this week, Lord, let us live for your glory in humility, remembering what you did for us, Father, loving our neighbor and proclaiming you as our King. Church, go with God and you are dismissed.